when we're looking at those things that at the end of our life, we're going to list as these were the meaningful, important people and things in our life. When we engage in those things and practices, we know that we experience this release of mood elevating neurochemicals. So we were wired for contentment, but it's, it's a complex web of our need for validations as humans, as well as the manipulation of our dopamine circuits by things like social media and commercialism that keep drawing us back to kind of the shiny, flashy objects that we often equate with happiness. Hi, this is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Simple Families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler, more intentional life. In this show, we focus on minimalism with kids, positive parenting, family wellness, and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for tuning in. That voice you heard in the intro is Nero Feliciano. Nero is a therapist, a podcaster, a mom, and now she's an author. She has her brand new first book, which is called This Book Won't Make You Happy, Eight Keys to Finding True Contentment. Nero's book is hilarious and it's real, honest, all the things I love for this podcast. So I am so excited to have her on. I also recently had the opportunity to hear her speak live at her book launch event, and you're going to love her. She's got four kids and her own share of stress and anxiety and overwhelm. But in today's episode, she starts to unpack it all for us. We'll talk a little bit about her work, her parenting journey, parenting four kids, and all about the difference between happiness and contentment. And I assure you, the difference is important. Without further ado, here's my chat with Nero. Hi, Nero. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for joining me today. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, I have so many questions for you, Um, but I want to say that on page 14 of your book, I decided that we should be friends. Okay. (laughs) What did I say on page 14? Um, you, You talked about how so much of your conversations with um, the people you love the most are really revolving around emojis and gifts, and your editor wouldn't let you use that in your book. That's right. <laughs> I feel like you can express so much. Oh, yeah. Little face, or right? right? <laughs> it's like a picture says a thousand words. That's right. I know. Yeah. So why do I need to if I, I can know. just use one of those? So right, and then yeah, I've actually made my own gifts too. Um, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> which is kind of fun if you haven't tried that. Um, but like this morning I was looking for a gladiator gift. Like I needed a really solid gift of like mm-hmm. a Roman gladiator and mm-hmm. I could not find one. Uh-huh. So I might have to reenact that one. <laughs> we actually probably have a costume in our house. If I can, <laughs> we I can, can lend it to you from some off. Halloween. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, so tell me a little bit about your family. You have four kids, right? I do. I do. And they're just getting so big so fast. I'm trying to hold on to it, you know, that balance between having them totally stress you out and then being so precious and being aware of the time going by. But they range from eight years old. I have an eight-year-old daughter, a 10-year-old daughter, 
um, a 13-year-old son and a 15-year-old daughter, all super busy. They have a life of their own, as many kids do living in this area. But um, it's been fun. I, you know, I was wondering how the teenage stage would be after working with adolescents, but I'm really enjoying it. I really am. Yeah. So tell us about your work. Mm-hmm. I'm a cognitive psychotherapist. I've been in practice for 17 years now and mainly treat anxiety. I think, you know, many people's practices have evolved around anxiety just because it's so heightened in our culture right now, not just with adults, but adolescents and kids as well. And um, then started to do some writing a couple years ago. And now I write for Psychology Today. I wrote this book, which we're going to talk about. Um, that is going to solidify our friendship as well. <laughs> it's done. I already decided. It. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on board, 100%. Uh, and um, I also host a podcast, All Things Life. So have my hand in many different areas right now. Yeah. And I'll put all those links in the show notes for anyone that wants to learn more. Oh, um, thank you. But so you originally set out to write a book on happiness, right? Mm, yeah. Tell me about that. You know, just because I was seeing so much anxiety. And it, you know, when I started practice, depression was pretty prevalent as well. Although I now feel like I see depression secondary to anxiety, almost as a result of anxiety, paralyzing anxiety, especially, but coming to think about what happiness really means in our culture led me more down the path of contentment because it felt like this pursuit of happiness, as it's written in our Declaration of Independence as a nation, is what's actually causing us to become more stressed and even depressed and certainly anxious. So decided to try a different road to something that is as fulfilling and certainly more sustainable um, from our day-to-day, in our day-to-day. Yeah. And you say in the book, if happiness is defined by having everything you want, contentment is wanting everything you have. Mm-hmm. And it, I just kind of wonder which one's easier to get to obtain. <laughs> they, mm. both, they both feel so daunting. They both are actually. And I think in some ways, you know, happiness, we can identify easier just in terms of the big things. A lot of times our happiness culturally is based on achievement and acquisition and collecting these accolades, which help in terms of our own self-worth, we look at them as measures of our validation, metrics of validation. Whereas contentment, if we stop and think about it, there are so many good things in our life that actually bring us incredible fulfillment if we take the time to invest in them and even just notice them. Mm-hmm. We're wired for contentment. So neurobiologically, we're wired for content. We know when we're connecting to people, when we spend time in nature when we're looking at those things that at the end of our life, we're going to list as these were the meaningful, important people and things in our life. When we engage in those things and practices, we know that we experience this release of mood elevating neurochemicals. So we were wired for contentment, but it's, it's a complex web of our need for validations as humans, as well as the manipulation of our dopamine circuits by things like social media and commercialism that keep drawing us back to kind of the shiny, flashy objects that we often equate with happiness. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to our kids too, because when Mm. I think about as a parent, we just so desperately want our kids to be happy. 
And it's hard to measure or really even recognize contentment in another person. It's much easier to see happiness, right? It's a smile or a laugh, right. but right. it's harder to know when you're impacting someone else's contentment. Yeah, that's it's so true. And I think part of it is around the messaging that our kids receive, not only in the home, but in their schools you know, it's very achievement oriented, whether it's on a sports field or in the classroom, so much so early on is geared towards this looks really good for college. And those are the messages that they begin to put with their own self-worth identity and self-esteem. So as parents, unless we're intentional about changing that message, um, this is what is going to be kind of the natural air they breathe growing up in this culture. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So I'm Sa- South Asian. I'm Sri Lankan American, and my husband's Puerto Rican. And our kids, we call them Puerto Lankans because <laughs> they're <laughs> somewhere in between, in between the two. Um, and my son is very goal driven when it comes to academics. And when he gets a B, he gets really upset, and he'll come home and he'll be like, "But mom, we're Asians. We're not Bijans." And, and I, <laughs> is that a, is that a phrase? I've never heard that only heard it from him and oh it, it, does, it does make me laugh and I have to remind him he's only 13 years old I'm like look first of all grades don't really matter right now and we need to just think about your study habits time management and go outside and like kick your soccer ball for a little while you know yeah. calm down um what is the messaging that we're giving our kids so that they are led towards contentment it's something that we have to think about intentionally because it's not natural given the world we live in yeah A's make kids happy because they Mm. feel like they have checked a box, right? And they have achieved and they make parents happy because we feel like we've checked our box, which means providing the necessary opportunities for our kids to thrive. Yeah. And those two things seem to need to sync up in order for us to feel like we're doing our job, that we need to be having kids that are, you know, thriving and, um, achieving are two words that are kind of hard to, to separate sometimes. That's absolutely right. And I think too, it's simpler for our brains to, to wrap itself around an idea where, okay, you have a, and then B and that equals C, right? So if we Mm -hmm. can check these boxes, then this is where we're going to end up. It's a simpler story to conceptualize. Whereas now, I mean, and any anxiety therapist will tell you, you can have these kids who have been high performers their whole life. And now they're facing paralyzing anxiety at a certain point. We see, we're seeing the greatest number of kids come home from college or want to transfer in their first semester because it's not easy for them anymore. So have we really taught them, how do you find contentment when things aren't going your way? You know, like with my son, it's just a small example, but when you're getting a B, how do we put this in perspective? or C or D or whatever it might be, you know. Um, but yeah, you're right. It It's an easier measure, again, a metric of happiness that we use to evaluate where we are. Let's pause for a three-minute break to hear from today's sponsors. Our first sponsor is Evite. Hands down, my favorite thing about Evite and the reason why I love when other people use it for their kids' parties is the reminders. Who couldn't use some reminders about events especially events like birthday parties, which seem to be happening nearly constantly as people are venturing back out into the world. Evite offers thousands of free invitation templates for every birthday theme imaginable. 
or if you've got a summer pool party, a bowling alley party, a bounce house, whatever it is, you can find free and premium online invitations. One more thing to take off your to-do list. I love that it's simple and straightforward, and my kids always love joining me to choose their favorite design. So make your little one's birthday party the big deal that it is. Find amazing, beautiful, one-of-a-kind designs in minutes for free. Head over to evite.com simple. That's E-V-I-T-E dot com slash simple. Evite.com slash simple. Our second sponsor for today is Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest is something that I've seen popping up in my Instagram and Facebook ads for years, and I've been curious to try. So as a new sponsor, they sent me a box to test out, and I loved it. In fact, I can't attest to whether my kids loved it because I kept everything for myself, but I will let you know what they think about future boxes. As a parent, you may find that fitting in a quick bite means eating your kids' leftovers from time to time. I think we've all been there. Daily Harvest has delicious harvest bowls, soups, flatbreads, snacks, smoothies, you name it. The mint and cacao smoothie was the first thing that I tried, and I was sold after that. I loved it. So if you're tired of your kids' leftovers or maybe you want some frozen food that actually makes your body feel good, then go to dailyharvest.com simple to get up to $40 off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com simple for up to $40 off your first box dailyharvest.com slash simple. Our third sponsor for today is Fabric. If you're a parent, then you know that kids are amazing and they're also amazingly expensive. But with Fabric, protecting your family with term life insurance is surprisingly affordable. Fabric was built specifically for parents to help you manage your family's financial future like a parenting pro, stress-free. There's no risk to apply today. Fabric has a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. So check it out. Protect your family with term life insurance now in just 10 minutes. Apply today at meetfabric.com slash simple. That's meetfabric.com slash simple to start protecting your family today. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash simple. Fabric insurance agency policies are issued by Vantus Life. They're not available in New York and Montana. Prices are subject to underwriting and health questions. What do you think about, I don't know, I feel like I see a push towards fairness in, especially Mm. in the schools. I think in a lot of families too, but here's an example. Like, so my daughter's in kindergarten and she can't even take, like if she finds a favorite rock and she wants to give it to a friend, like she's not allowed to just take one rock to school and give it to a friend. She would have to take 21 rocks. So she had a rock for everyone like that. I, I, I'm like trying to unpack that in my mind. And it's like, why can't we just have things that are for some people? Why, why do we, I don't know. Help me make sense of that. Yeah. I think if we're constantly pushing this message for fairness, I don't think kids are going to be prepared for a world that is full of injustice. Yeah. Right. We have to teach them how to stand in the face of injustice and also appreciate the normal kind of, um, the climate that we live in, that life is unfair. You know, having four kids and two parents, um, we're always telling our kids, it's not always going to be fair. Sometimes this child is going to have a moment or a day with mom where you're not, and we're going to try and do that at another time. You're not always going to be the attention. It's not going to be equal. What you see at Christmas is not going to look equal, right? As you get older, 
you might get fewer things, but they cost a lot of money. So um, it's, there's going to be unfairness all over the place. Um, and sometimes it's earned, right? So this person gets the reward because they actually did the best in this event. It's not a participation trophy that mm -hmm. we also, again, you know, there's messaging around that from the beginning as well that creates very real discontent in kids. But, um, but we have intentionally changed that messaging in our house. So our kids know, you know, sometimes it's going to be for you. Sometimes it's going to be for a sibling and that's okay. That's how the world tends to work. So do you hear yeah. that a lot? Do you have a lot of complaints about fairness in your house? Um, we did early on, you know, and now they know that our, our response is life is not fair. There are going to be things in this house that don't feel fair, but we are going to try to make it fair. Mm -hmm. um, and regardless of what you see, we love all of you. You're all beloved to us um, in different ways. I don't even say we love you all the same because it's different. We love you as intensely, but, but our relationships are going to be different. And I run into that problem when I'm working with families or I used to do families. I don't work with families so much, but this idea that this is not fair. Well, yeah. you look at where kids get into colleges and who gets in and who doesn't. We're not seeing fairness there, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to prepare them for that early on, that what you see in terms of fair or not is not a direct measure of your value or your worth. Yeah. Or your belovedness as a human. And I think as parents, the harder we try to be fair, mm. it almost seems like the further we're getting from that goal because that goal is impossible. Mm. So the person perceiving the fairness, the child, has a very different measuring stick that often is not one that we even quite understand. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Right. It is. Fairness is subjective for sure. And in that case, is there really a thing as fairness? Right. I mean, equality versus fairness. Right. Um, it's not concrete that, no. that fairness factor. It's not measurable. And I think we can really try at times like the holidays mm. and birthdays, right. like everyone is getting this many packages and everyone is getting this dollar amount. Right. And it's a little bit easier to achieve in mm -hmm. things like that. But in general life, it's just, it's, not, not no, not it's really difficult. And oftentimes they're in, in that sense, there are factors that are within our control if we're talking about holidays, birthdays, those things. But oftentimes, you know, in life and the big things, they're factors out of our control. Mm -hmm. So we have to equip them with the tools. And it, even when I say tools, the mindset to be able to walk into those situations and still know their worth um, and understand that certain things are subjective and out of their control. Yeah. And I've tried to notice my own tendencies. I grew up as one of four with mm. parents who really, really tried to make everything fair. Yep. And I've tried to notice when that comes up for me, because I do think sometimes I try to make things fair for my two kids when they don't even demand it. <laughs> like mm, right. the, holi the holidays, like my son often wants something smaller and less expensive. And my daughter wants all the things that are, that cost all the money. And yep. mm -hmm. I think in my mind, like I still have to be equal, but really yeah. like he doesn't really care if it's equal or not. So I think reminding myself that I don't have to create this fairness when it's not even what they're, they're asking for. It's my, That's own, right. my own stuff. That's right. And it's interesting to think, okay, where did I internalize that message that this is something that has to be done? 
right? Because mm -hmm. so many times we operate from these messages that we've internalized and they may not even make sense when we're looking at the situation that they're being applied to in our own families. Yeah. Um, and what actually would make these children, these kids consent, it may yeah. be something very different. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I had all sorts of thoughts in your first chapter on normal. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, I thought it was, that was just so valuable for me to think about normal and what happens when normal doesn't fulfill us. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about this, this section of the book and this conversation? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. This is April is stress awareness month. Um, and I just did an interview and they were talking about everybody's stressed. Everyone has stressors going on. And that's one of the examples of what's become normalized. And even again, a measure of our diligence and work and worth. If we are stressed, if we work or are, if we stress ourselves to success, then we know that we've done everything that we can. But we know that physiologically, it's incredibly harmful, especially long term to our bodies, but we minimize that piece of it because it's become so normalized. But that is one normal that is no longer serving us. And there's so much research now that is linking some serious illnesses to chronic stress. Um, if you've seen, who is it, Gabor Mate's When the Body Says No, uh, illnesses such as breast cancer, lung cancer, the exacerbation of autoimmune disease have a similar psychosocial profile when it comes to chronic and long-term stress. So it, it is one of those things that don't work for us. This idea for thinking about kids, and I'm, I'm right now, as I'm talking to you, thinking about, okay, which kid needs to go to what soccer field and <laughs> lacrosse field right now? Who's going to get them there? But, and knowing that until COVID, we never had dinner together as a family because someone's on a field or in a swimming pool till eight, nine o'clock at night. This is a normal that is not necessarily serving us as families in terms of our connection. And we know from the research that connection really is the heartbeat of connect of contentment and also longevity in all of the studies. So there are certain things we've just accepted as this is how we're going to do it because everybody does it. And this is what it means to be happy and successful and the path to getting there. But it's hurting us emotionally, psychologically, and even physically. So these are the normals that have to be challenged and we have to think about, all right, everybody's doing it, but what does this mean for me and my family? Is this working for us? Is this serving us? And is this ultimately going to equate to happiness? If we don't ask those questions, we get sucked into these cycles and can end up in a place that's pretty harmful. Yeah. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about that, what you just said, that um, connection is the heartbeat of contentment. Mm. And it's so hard when I'm like trying to listen and hear what someone's saying when I'm interviewing them, but my head is also like spinning in a bunch of different directions. Yep. That's what's I, happening right I now. I understand that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think about connection and how it impacts contentment. And I, in my own life, and I'm thinking about like when I'm feeling really irritable with my partner and almost always that irritability and that just frustration with him is related to feeling disconnected almost mm. always. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I've always thought about it as like me being unhappy. So my, ha my happiness is connected, is connected to my connection is right. um, interrelated. But now that I'm thinking about it as the connection contentment 
piece that is really interesting. And I think with my kids too, right? When I'm feeling really connected to him, them, they are less cooperating better. They yeah. are, um, their moods are better. They're regulating themselves better. And so am I, yeah. and I'm mm-hmm. feeling more content and that contentment is contagious. Absolutely. I love that. That contentment is contagious. It is. And I do think we experience that dissonance, the cognitive dissonance, the internal dissonance when we're not connected. And I know for me, if my husband and I are not connected, that frustration gets offloaded in inadvertently onto people around me. So I might be shorter with my kids, um, less patient. I may not feel as connected to them in those times too, exactly what you said. And even, I mean, I opened the book, the preface is a moment where my husband and I were the most disconnected we've ever been. And it's funny, when I was writing it, that actually happened, that story in the preface. And for those of you who haven't read the book, it's probably one of the biggest fights my husband and I got into on our anniversary. Um, It happened two weeks before the final edits were due for my book. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I changed the date in there because when I was turning in, it was too raw. But um, I was like, let me give Ed and I a little space and I'll change the date. But I've been talking about it now because it was this, you know, people are like, is there such thing as good stress? Good stress is still stress. Mm -hmm. It's still stress and it takes a toll on you and the people around you. It was great that I had the opportunity to write the book, but yes, it took a toll on Mm -hmm. my relationship with my husband and my family. And, but it was also, that moment was a turning point for us. So it ended up, you know, I contacted my editor very less. I'm like, please, 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 let me make one more change. Can we add this story to the beginning? I love love it because it's like, you know, you just wrote this whole book on contentment Mm -hmm. and then you wrote this little mini story at the beginning of the book, at the end of the process that, you know, it's still part of your journey. Like you are very much a work in progress. All the time, all day long, all day long. I had someone today stop me. I, I went to the gym and she said, Nero, you are the most present person I know. You always take time for people. And I, I, I said to her, my family would say that is my worst quality, <laughs> <laughs> that I am so not present at home. Um, and I try to be, and I'm becoming more intentional about what that looks like in the home. It's easy. Sometimes it's easier to be a certain way in certain settings and much harder in others. Yeah. So for sure, a work in progress. Yeah. I remember shortly after I published my book, which is entitled mm-hmm. Simple Happy Parenting, my husband, right. we were in an argument and he kind of threw out, oh, simple, happy parenting, huh? Oh <laughs> I my just, like, The irony of it. And I was just yes. like, cuts deep, right? It um, does. That's the worst. <laughs> and it, it certainly happened here. I know. Right. I, my husband said the same thing today. I was looking at another author whose book was released and he was like, don't you write a whole chapter on not comparing? What are you doing? <laughs> you're not going to be content doing this. I said, yeah, I know. I know. You're right. Let me read right. my book. Yes. Yeah. And it, I think there's always that kind of teetering between like, you know, being a quote unquote expert, but also still learning from your own material all the time, which I know that I am for sure. Yeah. And just being human. We are experts, yeah. but we're human and, and we're subject to all the things that humans go through. Um, and we have to be intentional about thinking that way, just like anyone else. Yeah. So you talk about being so busy with your kids, but also mm-hmm. recognizing the downfalls of that. How do you mm-hmm. reconcile that? What do you do about it? Yeah. It, and part of it is that intentionality. Okay. I know this is our schedule. Um, where can I carve in 
time with kids, one-on-one time. And really what our research says is 10 to 15 minutes of one-on-one time with kids makes a huge difference. Um, With four kids, I, I hate to say this, but it's hard to find 15 minutes for all of them every day. But can I hit two of them? Um, great, you know, to feel connection, to strengthen connection, it's important for their self-esteem and sense of security in themselves and in the family. So it's, it's really about being intentional. This week is our spring break. And, um, it was funny. I was saying how I was resentful that we have to be here for lacrosse for high school. Um, and I was like, I have to work on this resentment being that I just wrote a book on contentment. Um, (laughs) But I've decided to make a date with each of my kids this week and say, let's let's do this. Do we get to do this all year round? No, but it's finding those moments where we can intentionally be together and walk, you know, decompress from the busyness. Um, family dinners. We're not a family that has dinner every night together. But if I look at our schedule, I'll be intentional about saying, okay, where can we carve that in? Maybe it's a breakfast or a brunch, but where are we coming together around a table and connecting? Because that's something that's important to me. So um, you have to, especially when you have these busy lives and multiple kids, unless you're intentional, we're going to be too tired to do it. The time isn't going to make itself. But if you figure out what is important to you and your family, you can, you can absolutely work it in. Yeah. I think that a lot of parents, especially stay at home parents feel Mm. this pressure to be on and connected all the time. And I, that 10 to 15 minute marker, which I also strive for. And I've read that research before and I love it Mm. because it's like, you know, if you could just carve out 10 or 15 minutes in a day to really, you know, get down on their level, look them in the eye, connect with them, how that is enough. And I think often it actually makes us want even more. And sometimes when we make that time, that time kind of expands and we end up doing it for even longer. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's just getting into the practice of putting it on your radar essentially so that you do it. Um, And, you know, start with one kid, start Mm -hmm. with one kid. And, and if you have that 10 to 15 minute time, that may be more than you've had in a long time Um, and build, build on that. And I think as parents with this life that we lead in terms of their scheduling and the things we feel like they need to do and the things they want to do and the things that are have become normal. We're so busy doing for the kids. We're out of practice in just being with the kids, mm-hmm. right? As so much of our time and attention is going into getting them from point A to B and fed and, you know, signing into every single app that we need to be on so that we can keep track of their lives and ours. But just that 10 to 15 minutes to just be with mm-hmm. them, whether it's talking or reading or just connecting. Yeah, absolutely. That is doable. I feel like. Yeah. So you talk a little bit about social media and the decline Mm. of adolescent mental health. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about how you handle that. I mean, you've obviously seen this in your practice. Talk Mm -hmm. a little bit more about that and then about how you handle it with your own kids. Sure. So yes. And it was interesting to me when I was doing the research that The biggest decline we saw came in 2012 when the expansion of the platforms on social media really happened. We saw um, Facebook take off, you know, Instagram started, I think, soon after. But it correlated with adolescent mental health and its decline in that year. 
in my practice, it's it's really interesting. Sometimes I have adolescents who can't even sit through a session without constantly checking their notifications. And then we have to kind of set boundaries around that for the session. But these kids are finding out things in real time and they're not prepared for it. Things about who's dating who, what's happening with their own you know, love interest, what party are they not invited to? And it's constant. And they just do not have the mental capacity to take it all in and process it in that moment. And because these notifications um, are happening all day long and they are very unlikely to silence them, they're getting this information all day and even all night. And it really is destructive to their mental health. I mean, when it is that dopamine circuit that's being hijacked where they constantly feel like they have to go back to it and need it. Um, so that becomes dangerous. And even as adults, we experience that on some level, especially if we're on social media for our work, even to check, was this good? Did people like it? Did they comment? So for kids, it's magnified um, in terms of brain development as well. So as these pathways are forming and being solidified. So I, with social media and kids, you know, we do talk about it. Um, it's hard. It's easier to get an adult to detox from social media. If it's affecting them negatively, it's harder for kids. So at least we try during the session. Um, certainly I advocate for getting phones and, and devices out of their rooms at night because many of them don't silence that notification and they can really be hooked on it into the wee hours of the morning, which then affects their sleep and their ability to cope. So that's one thing that we work on, um, in session and also understanding we're only seeing a snapshot, right, of that person's real life. And that's hard for kids to, um, in, you know, take in as well, because they're constantly comparing and deriving their self-worth from what they see. Mm-hmm. And especially body image for young, young girls. Um, you know, I, I say in the book, I think we used to get a magazine like once a month, maybe, um, but they are inundated constantly all day long with these images of perfection that are filtered mm-hmm. and manipulated. So that affects their own self sense of self-worth, that visual diet, we call it, right? I often think about, especially how Instagram kind of intermingles your real people and celebrities and other people. And it Mm. just kind of comes across as this, like this feed of just like mixture. And it almost, I think, makes me wonder if our brains can't piece apart what's real versus what's not real. And when I say not real, what is highly edited versus what are the real people in our lives versus the people who, um, you know, have a whole team of makeup artists and hair artists and personal trainers and that kind of thing. I think we take it all in, in one swoop Mm -hmm. and we don't stop to differentiate. And even now your regular non-celebrity has at their disposal, a plethora of filters to be able to manipulate their images too. So we really don't know what's real from what's not. Um, Just in terms of my own house and my own kids, we're still navigating that because my son just turned 13. He just got Instagram. I did say to my kids, no social media until you're 13 because, uh, you know, I've seen too many things happen and even kids finding themselves in really difficult situations very young when that's, they've had access to that early Um, but we check time limits. The apps have time limits on their phones. Um, I do advocate for them not to have their phones in their room at night. They have alarm clocks for that reason in their bedrooms, but it is a constant battle. And especially when you have two busy working parents, 
it's hard to keep on top of all the time. So yeah. it's evolving as they're getting older. And also I want to empower them to make those decisions for themselves and recognize, oh, are you feeling kind of icky right now? Mm-hmm. And how much time has have you been connected to a device? I want them to make that correlation because I'm not always going to be there. And, yeah. and, you know, I want them to do it without me just knowing. And I've seen that. My daughter once said, um, I deleted TikTok because I've been spending way too much time on it. Mm. And I was really proud of her for that. I think she was only 14 when she made that decision and then went back to it intermittently. But I was glad that she was able to recognize that. Yeah. I think even as an, an adult, sometimes I don't have that good internal awareness that interoception awareness, interoceptive awareness to know Ooh. when I, the things I'm consuming don't make me feel good. Like I definitely have eaten a ton of sugar in my life and then mm. not realized that, you know, like binged on Halloween candy, that kind yeah. of thing mm-hmm. and not realized that it makes me feel yucky. And I had the same with binging on social media and Instagram and not realizing until I'm in way too deep that I've gone overboard. And I think as an adult, if it happens to me, that it absolutely will happen to our kids. Absolutely. And this is also why we're going to be good friends because (laughs) been there. I know what you're talking about. And sometimes even just on social media, if I find myself and and we have to take kind of a mood check, right? How is this making me feel Mm -hmm. in this moment? And to notice that our mood changes as we're exposed to different things. Um, if we step away and say, okay, this is not my real life. My real life is here. It's amazing how much more peaceful I can feel when I start to really immerse myself in what is my real life. It's not, I mean, these are my followers, friends, whatever it is, but do I know these people? No. Um, is my value determined by these metrics? No. Mm-hmm. Here's my real life. It's my kids. It's my husband. It's these people who I have relationships with. It's the work that I do. And all of a sudden that lens on contentment shifts pretty fast, at least for me. Yeah. I also loved what you had to say about hustling. Mm. You said, we've been led to believe that the more you hustle, the stronger you are, the smarter you are, the more accomplished you are. And we have to earn our worthiness. But don't forget, the more you hustle, the more exhausted, disconnected, and distracted you are too. Mm. All of the above. Yeah. That's Yeah. A lot to swallow. I think about, I love my Peloton and um, I often been very conflicted with the messaging from a lot of the instructors, which is very hustle heavy. Mm. And um, this idea that like, and especially like, you know, you can hustle and you can be a mom and you can be strong. And I love all those messages, but also I feel very tired by like Mm -hmm. thinking that hustling equals a six pack and toned arms and toned legs. And that I can do all that while I'm still like running my own business and being a present parent. And the reality is the person that's giving me this messaging has, this is, this is this person's job, right? Like they get paid six or seven figures to be fit and to be like encouraging me to hustle. But what is, what is hustling? What is the cost in my real life? That's right. That's right. And to, to acknowledge this is a piece of your life and you do so many other things that are going to require your energy and focus and to give yourself grace. And I think there might be days where you say, hey, today I feel like hustling. Today I feel like hitting this workout really hard. But to be able to kind of check our internal um, barometer and say, what do I need today? 
you know, and I, I do that even, I don't, I don't do the Peloton um, bike, but I go to Orange Theory. I'm like, hey, some days I don't want to run the marathon on this treadmill. I want to take a walk through Central Park and that's fine, you know, because that's how I'm feeling today. This is what I need. Um, but especially if we feel like we're more disconnected, we're more distracted, um, we need to see where, you know, what's, what's creating it, what's causing it in our life. And again, these are questions that unless we ask, we're not going to be attuned to it. Yeah. And there, there is so much pressure to do it all and have it all together. Mm -hmm. From everywhere, from everywhere. And like you said, okay, you're doing the Peloton and that that's that person's job. It's not our job, but all of a sudden we're kind of um, assuming the same goals that they have, right? For in that moment that we're together, working out. But this is a part of your life. So I think to be able to have that perspective, it is hard to do it all. It is yeah. hard to do it all. And we're not called to do it all. Yeah. Um, and what areas do you want to invest in? Yeah. And you say that contentment, contentment is closer than you think. It requires awareness, intention, and persistence. Mm. And that awareness piece is just... I feel like once you kind of start to open that box, you do start to see all of the ways in which you are being impacted by the world around you. And mm-hmm. those expectations are, are exceeding reality. They are, they are, and we are impacted and we are taking in this messaging, even when we don't realize it because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And I, I do think, you know, um, my editor said, you talk a lot about social media in this book. And I said, because it's such a prevalent factor and it's so easily accessible. And because we're hustling and because we're exhausted, it's a quick fix for us to experience this new world of new information, which um, rewards our dopamine circuits, right? So it's complicated and at the same time so easy, but we internalize so much of this messaging that we're not even aware of. So the awareness, you're right. Once we can tap into that, um, it can be a game changer in terms of finding contentment. Yeah. And I'm in the middle of a big social media detox. I've cut way back. Mm, but thinking I saw of, that. Thinking about that before that, I mean, I was definitely sp- spending three plus hours a day on social media, responding to direct messages right. and sure. creating content. And that something that takes up three hours of your day, seven days a week, I mean, that's almost 24 hours in a week. Right. So is it going to impact your wellness and overall well-being in all aspects? Yes. Like anything that's in your life, 24 hours in a week is going to have, is going to have a huge impact. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I think part of there are good things about social media for sure and ways that it can be used for good and it can be helpful to whatever you're doing. It's just important to know the boundaries around it. Right. So so for me and I'm again, work in progress, especially with this book coming out, I find myself more on social media. But to say, how much time do I want to spend on this a day and set those limits? And walk away from it. And sometimes that's meant for me. And I'm an adult and I'm a professional. That's meant deleting the app or I'm going to still go on it. And that's because our neurochemistry is pretty powerful. And that too keeps us attached to these apps. Um, So it is powerful. It's more than just willpower and making the decision. Sometimes we have to take action if we really want to be mindful of how we're spending our time and what we feel good about 
And for me, you know, at a certain point I was like, well, way too many hours. I don't feel good about that. Mm -hmm. Um, so setting that boundary and that limit was important. Yeah. And I think stepping back from it has actually, Mm -hmm. now I can feel it, feel the impact more so. So I've stepped back and I've taken a huge break. And if I do go back onto any of the platforms I was on before, I feel it almost instantly, the impact on me. And it used to be, I could just kind of like binge and binge and not notice, but now I'm much more keenly aware of how I feel. So I think that's been a big perk of detoxing is noticing more of the impact on my day to day. I was going to ask you how you felt coming off it. What, what, are you, can I ask you questions too? Yeah. yeah <laughs> That's please. a therapist, right? In me. <laughs> um, what, what did you feel coming off social media? How so coming off Instagram has been a huge relief because if I can be quite honest and I don't, I don't mean to undermine any of the conversations that I've had on Instagram with people listening, cause it's been such a wonderful way to connect and meet so many listeners. But a lot of the conversations I was having on on Instagram, especially it was just, it was very superficial kind of like, Oh, great post. Thanks. Like, I'm glad you mm-hmm. liked it. Mm-hmm. Smile face, smile heart, right? like mm-hmm. exclamation point. And it just didn't fill me up, you know, mm-hmm. like that kind of thing. Like I like community. I like conversation and those little conversations like that, those little like mini kind of superficial interactions. I wouldn't even call them conversations they take a lot of time and a lot of energy and there's a lot of repetition in it and it doesn't feel authentic to me because that's not how I talk to people. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I do talk in giffies, but I don't generally talk (laughs) in like smiley face emojis as frequently. Right. 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 Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So that has been a relief, not having to show mm -hmm. up to do that. Yep. I I think there is this low level of anxiety that people feel Mm -hmm. when they're constantly connected to a device that keeps calling their name that we keep going to. And, and I asked you that because one thing that I do recommend for clients is to do this social media detox. And in all the years that I have made that recommendation, I've never had a client come back and say, Oh, I don't feel better. They Mm -hmm. always come back noticing a difference. And so my book came out last week. Um, but the month of February, I really felt strongly to come off social media. So I did because I also knew that being on social media, I was going to start looking at what other people were doing, who had books come out and how big were their platforms. Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't want those metrics to be a value of my worth or the value of this book. So I came off social media entirely in February and it was the best thing that I could have done for my own mental health going into the launch um, because we change our perspective um, on what's important, what's valuable in terms of how we invest our time as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So no, I was curious how yeah. you experienced no, it as well. Been, and there, a lot of, a lot of anxiety reduced, I would say. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I also feel that comparison really strong comparing myself against other content creators. Mm-hmm. You know, they're creating more frequently. I'm not doing enough. Um, Mm -hmm. their platforms are growing faster. There's like all that, all the head games that go into it that don't help anyone in any shape or form. And, um, yeah, it's good to kind of just be at peace with myself. And, you know, I feel Mm. like it's hard enough to keep up with my own life, but yet keeping up with the lives of hundreds of others is just, it's so silly to think that we can do that or that that's normal. Right. Right. And it's a losing battle. 
Yeah. Right. It's a fetal cycle for sure. And I, you know, there's that saying comparison is a thief of joy, which is true, but it's also mm-hmm. a thief of purpose yeah. because we all have a unique one here and there are th- things that we can only do um, for people who are around us, you know, especially our families that no one else can step into that role. And I think when we start comparing, we lose sight of the importance of that role. Yes. So much so. Mm. And it's harder, I think, to focus on the people within our homes when we're so focused on the people outside of our homes and comparing people in our homes with the ones that we see either. It could be in person or online. Yeah, I think that so much the past two years we've spent comparing ourselves to the people online because those have really been our people because we haven't seen people in person as much. So it's been a lot of that. And now I kind of feel like we're like pulling out of that, you know, how do we how do we increase the number of in-person interactions? And Mm. it's been kind of slow and steady. In the beginning of 2020, January of 2020, we made a resolution, my husband and I, that we were going to have one family over for dinner each month. Mm. Um, Just have like like uh, our family and their family together and just to get to know some new families in the community. And we only made it to February, March, obviously Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we lost it, but, um, so we brought it back this year in 2022 Mm -hmm. and, um, we succeeded and did one in January and did one in February. Um, haven't, we missed March though, Mm -hmm. (laughs) not really sticking Mm -hmm. to it, but it's been harder, like just like putting ourselves out there, especially when it's people we don't know all that well, but people we want to get to know better, um, it's exhausting. I f- I'm finding yeah. socializing kind of exhausting in yeah. person. At least. I, don't, I don't think you're the only one. I think many people are finding that because in addition to trying to do that, we have jumped back into the pace of life as it was pre-pandemic, especially when you have children, right? So um, the commitments that we have that are now in person, the driving to different places, um, it's all taking kind of a toll on us. And it seemed to happen fairly suddenly, right? It was overnight. Okay. Restrictions are gone. Masks are gone, whatever it is. And it's a lot to acclimate to. So now I can understand why that feels exhausting because you're kind of taking, going back all at once to everything. Um, But twice is pretty good considering (laughs) how infrequently we did those things over the last two years. And I'm kind of wondering how, spending a lot of time in these kind of superficial conversations on social, on social media has impacted the way I view those longer, more Mm. in-depth connecting Mm -hmm. conversations. I also think that, you know, when I was talking about in the book, just our sympathetic nervous systems are dysregulated. It's harder for us to come down and be present and, and feel really invested in moments because we've been in this fight or flight emergent stage so often. So I think when we're talking about getting used to certain behaviors like that, it's also a a matter of um, regulating again to a normal where we're not on high alert all Mm -hmm. the time, you know, every few days. And, and just the fact that we have this sympathetic dysregulation um, that creates exhaustion in our body. You know, our body is working hard to kind of fight off this threat that may be psychological or perceived, but mm-hmm. our body is still mounting a physiological response to it. And that creates real physical exhaustion mm-hmm. as well as mental uh, fatigue as well. So all of that has plays a part 
and how now we're facing these situations that at once may have been a lot easier than they are in the moment. Yeah. How do you feel like the pandemic has changed socializing for adolescents? Mm -hmm. I think it's much harder for them to connect in person because when they were doing it on a screen for so long, and then they were doing it with masks, right? Mm -hmm. So especially for kids who have anxiety, who are not loud, um, they've kind of withdrawn more because that was an obstacle for many of them. Even though they were protective, you know, I feel like it certainly impacted them socially and emotionally. But they're getting through it. You know, the kids are getting through it and slowly acclimatizing. But it's going to take, especially kids with anxiety who had trouble with it in the first place, we need to give them more time to get used to it. Yeah. And actually, this makes me think of um, in your book, you talk about going skiing. <laughs> And we have very, very, very similar sentiments about skiing. Okay. Um, yeah. Which is a very privileged thing to be able to do, of course. Absolutely. Um, but very similar sentiments around like, why the, am I doing why this? Why do we do this? Yeah. Um, the one thing that stood out to me was you said that your parents being from Sri Lanka thought that the two things you should like never do is throw yourself down a mountain skiing and <laughs> camping. <laughs> right. Why? Why? That's yeah. what I hear from them. And and you said, here we are doing things that make no sense to our parents. And it also makes no sense to us, but we're still doing it because we feel like there's some benefit in it for our kids if they learn to ski in their lives, especially if they're living in the Northeast. But we're island people. We don't like the gold. We still do it anyway. And you, like you said, it's a privilege. We're paying for it as well. And maybe even feeling a little resentful when we're on our way there. So there are things that we do, even if we feel like it doesn't make sense because we feel like there's some social benefit to it, mm -hmm. some personal benefit in, yeah. in doing it. But I think we have to start questioning those things, you yeah. know, not only the benefit, but what is the sacrifice of this? I'm a social worker too. And I started my oh, career mm -hmm. working with um, families with long histories of neglect and abuse and mm. anger management challenges. And I will say that I think going to a ski hill and observing parents is probably the angriest group of parents I have ever seen in my witness to my life. Mm. And I've seen a lot of angry parents. Interesting. But I it's it's a fascinating thing to observe. And it is like really that I spent a lot of money, I spent yes. a lot of time. Yes. You should be happy. And like, why right. aren't you having more fun? Why am I not having more fun? Yes. <laughs> it's, yes. It's fascinating. You know where else today I've seen that is Disney World. Oh, you know, yeah. another privileged place. Mm -hmm. But I remember once we were waiting in this long line for this ride in the heat. And I saw this parent. I probably have been that parent, so no judgment. Literally turning around and screaming at their child. Um, this is the happiest place <laughs> on earth. Why aren't you happy? But it's the same thing. I have this expectation, maybe even bordering on entitlement, that because I paid for this, because this is an opportunity that everybody says is amazing, mm -hmm. that you need to appreciate it too. But the actual conditions that we subject ourselves to in those moments aren't that, you know, happiness inducing, right? Yeah. So yeah. um yeah, we're fixed on these perspectives. Well, Nero, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Oh, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I am looking forward to meeting you in person. 
Yes. And creating some gifts together, maybe. Absolutely. Thank you. And I'm <laughs> going to put the link to your book. This book won't make you happy in the show notes, and I will be sharing it with lots of others. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to have you tuning in. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Nero. If you want to get the links to stay in touch with her and check out her brand new book, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 306. If you want to jump on board and be one of the first patrons and or members of the Simple Families community, I would love to have you. simplefamilies.com forward slash community. As always, thanks for tuning in and have a good one.